0: Well, as I mentioned uh, as I prayed a moment ago, we're dealing with a topic this morning that is hugely important, especially in our culture, the, the topic of marriage, Christian marriage, biblical marriage, and the, the relationship between husbands and wives. And, and the, the title for our message this morning is the countercultural marriage. Because when we understand what God has called us to biblically, it really is a countercultural vision of, of the relationship of the family, the relationship between husbands and wives. And, and it's a vision that when lived out accurately, correctly, in line with God's word, it truly has the opportunity to brightly shine the light of God's truth in our dark culture today a culture where marriage is increasingly being devalued and, and, and people are, are less and less likely to pursue the, the union of marriage. And, and so we need as Christians to understand what God has taught us about marriage, but then we need to humble ourselves under his word and, and live these things out faithfully. And so I believe that our passage this morning will go a long way in helping us to do this. We, we live in a day and age where there's a lot of confusion, and a lot of misconception and, and sadly a lot of caricature of what God has called us to in Scripture. one of the most popular television series in recent years is a TV series that you can find on the internet provider Hulu. It's a it's a series called The Handmaid's Tale. And in this TV series, the the series centers around a dystopian United States that has just gone through a civil war. And and as a result of this civil war, a new fundamentalist Christian theocratic government has taken over the nation. And women have now been subjected to men, and they're no longer allowed to work, and their rights have been stripped away, and, and they have been put into specific special classes. And one of these classes are the handmaids. And these are women who, who dress in these red robes and they wear these, these white uh, head coverings. And, and the handmaids are concubines to the leaders of this fundamentalist Christian government. They are there solely for the purpose of procreating and producing children to serve this, this government. And this has become one of the most popular programs on TV today for the last four years. It's won Emmy Awards and Golden Globe Awards. And many in our culture today have latched on to this television show, The Handmaid's Tale, as a critique of the biblical view of marriage. Not just marriage, but the biblical view of life, of sexuality, of gender, and again, of the roles of husbands and wives in Christian marriage. And so many of the protest movements that you'll see on the news in today's day and age, right? Like in the Me Too movement, in the protests against Supreme Court nominees, and many of the things that we've seen taking place in recent days, you'll see women dressed up in these costumes representing these handmaids, these women who have been completely subjected and dominated by the will of men. And the argument is this is what Christianity promotes, This is what a biblical portrayal of men and women leads to in our culture. And these are the kind of caricatures that are commonplace and widespread today. You can find critiques like this all over on social media and on the internet. For example, this week I was looking at uh, quotes uh, A.L. Gaylor from the Freedom from Religion Foundation. He says this, he says, Why do women remain second-class citizens? Why is there a religion-fostered war against women's rights? Because the Bible is a handbook for the subjugation of women. The Bible establishes women's inferior status, her uncleanliness, her transgressions, and her God-ordained master-servant relationship to man. These are the common views we see in our culture today. I saw another quote this week from Seth Andrews, who's a former Christian. He's now founder of an organization called The Thinking Atheists. He says, I continue to be amazed when I see Christian women defending a Bible that denigrates women. Interesting. And again, these aren't random, foreign, obscure quotes. These are common visions of what biblical Christianity teaches and leads to. I saw an article this week from the Washington Post. It was titled, What Draws Women to a Religion That Says Men Should Be in Charge? Let me read the opening of this article for you. Growing up in rural Mississippi, Gracie Robinson decided early on that she would never get married. In her Baptist church, she heard the preaching the Bible orders women to be submissive to their husbands. Robinson didn't want to be submissive. This summer... 26 years old and unmarried, now enrolled in a seminary 300 miles from the dusty backwater she describes growing up in, she's holding court, ranting over garlic, fries, and gumbo that she'll never let a man control her. Every time I think about it, it just burns me up, she says, as the other female seminarians laugh and clap. Friends, is this the biblical view of marriage? Is this an accurate portrayal of of what the Bible teaches about the the union of a husband and a wife and how they're to relate to one another? How are we as Christians to respond to these kinds of arguments, to these kinds of critiques? And, and, And how do we answer this, what I would argue, is a false caricature of what the Bible truly presents? This is a hugely important topic because, again, it's one of the most misunderstood topics in all the Bible by our culture today. What is the proper relationship between men and women in a biblical, Christ-centered marriage? Well, that's what Peter's going to address for us in our passage this morning. As we turn now to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we're going to find the Apostle Peter speak specifically to the marriage relationship and the relationship between husbands and wives. And I think what we're going to come to discern here this morning is that what Peter presents under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a very different kind of vision of marriage. Than what our culture often misunderstands and caricatures when it looks at biblical Christianity. Let's read our passage this morning, then I want to come back and I want to, I want to comment on our, our passage. Uh, before we do that, we're actually going to go back and look at the context of where this passage falls. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Stephen for his excellent sermon last week. If you didn't have a chance to hear it, go back online, listen to last week, because last week is really part one to today's message. We, we can't understand what Peter's talking about today unless we understand the proper context. We're going to go back and review some of that context this morning, but Pastor Stephen did a great job highlighting that for us. Let's begin looking at our passage, and then we're going to go back and summarize some of the context of where this passage falls. Peter says this, Likewise, wives... so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now again, there are some things in this passage which are initially somewhat difficult for us to understand. Some of these words that Peter uses are a little discomforting for us. And we're going to come back and talk about this passage specifically, but before we do that, we first need to understand contextually why this passage is here and what Peter is trying to communicate to us when he specifically highlights the marriage relationship of a man and a woman. So first thing we need to recognize this morning is as sojourners in this world, remember last week we saw Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. Again, this world is not our home. We are temporary travelers just passing through. And as sojourners in this world, number one, we need to recognize that we are called to embrace a countercultural mission. We're called to embrace a countercultural mission. The way we are called to live in this world is very different from the way the people of this world live their lives. What is this countercultural mission that we're called to? Well, I'm going to go back. We're going to rewind the tape back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And Pastor Stephen covered this last week, okay? He did a terrific job covering this. I'm not doing this to say or imply that he didn't cover this well. No, we need to go back and be reminded of what we saw last week because today's passage flows directly out of it. So, what is our countercultural mission? Peter tells us here. Remember, he shifted gears now. We're in the second half of the letter. The second half of the letter starts with these verses. Why? Because Peter is now moving into instruction for us about how we live out our Christian faith in this world. The first half of the letter was all about who we are, the promises we've been given, our identity in Christ, our calling, our commission. Remember, that was all the background. Now Peter's talking about how do we live this out? What does it look like? And he starts with these words. Beloved. So Peter begins the second half of his book, his exhortation for how we should live as Christians in this world. He reminds us we're just temporary strangers passing through, we're sojourners. And as sojourners, he says two things. Number one, abstain... Abstain from the things of the flesh, the things of this world, this fallen culture, which wage war against your soul. Okay, so again, he's reminding us about our call to be set apart, to live lives of holiness. And then he goes on and he says, Let your conduct among the Gentiles be honorable, so that when they see your good deeds, they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay? He says they're going to accuse you of being an evildoer. Understand that. They're not going to understand who you are or your way of life or your worldview. But when those misunderstandings and accusations happen, how are we to respond? We are to respond with even greater acts of love, even more honorable conduct, so that the unbelieving world around us sees our lives and says, there's something different about these people. I, I, in fact, I, I, I want what they have. And as a result, the hope and prayer is that they would see our deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. This is why Peter starts out our passage this morning speaking to wives who might even have unbelieving husbands. Verse 1 of our passage, he's speaking to wives who might have unbelieving husbands and he says to those women specifically, let your lives be so honorable in conduct that even your husband might be curious and see your good deeds and want to glorify God. Okay, so it's all about how we live our lives in this world for the sake of God's glory. Now, there's an interesting statement here that Peter shares in, in verses, verse 12. He says, when they speak against you as evildoers. Now, why would they do that? Why would the world consider us as Christians evildoers 2,000 years ago and even today? Friends, it's because they don't understand us. It's because they don't embrace the same worldview that we embrace. And this was taking place 2,000 years ago. In Peter's day, it's taking place even today in our day. The world doesn't get us. It doesn't get the way we live. It doesn't get our beliefs. It doesn't get our lifestyle, our attitude, our values. And so the world maligns us and critiques us and calls us evildoers. In Peter's day, the Christians were upsetting the social norms of that culture. In, in, in first century Asia Minor, where the churches where Peter was writing to were, under the Roman emperor, Caesar was Lord. And, and there was a whole cult of Caesar worship in the Roman emperor Empire. You, you worship the Roman emperor as God, as a God in flesh. The Christians said, no, we're not going to worship Caesar as Lord. There's only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so they were upsetting the social norms and therefore being accused of being evildoers. And and, and the Christians in the workplace, whether they were slaves or or workers under a boss, right? In, In that first century culture, the master was the boss. He was in charge. But the Christians who put their trust in Jesus, they said No. I'll honor my master, I'll honor my boss, but he's not ultimately in charge of my life. Jesus is. And so they were upsetting the social customs, the social norms. It was happening even in marriage, right? One or, one of the, one or two of the spouses would become a believer. But especially when a woman became a believer before her husband, that became a problem, Because every family worshiped their own Greco-Roman deities and gods. And and now imagine you've got a Christian wife who comes to her husband and says, look it, I can't worship the family God anymore. What do you mean you're not going to worship our God? We've been worshiping this God for generations. I'm sorry. Jesus is God. And it was upsetting the social norms. And so, this is why Peter then goes on to describe our countercultural mission. And specifically, as we saw last week in Pastor Stephen's message, he addresses three primary areas where we are to live such good lives that they will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. What are those three areas? Our subjection or submission to government our subjection or submission to our masters or our bosses, and our subjection or submission in marriage. These were the three primary areas where Christians were upsetting the social norms and customs, where they were accused of being evildoers. And so Peter specifically addresses these areas, imploring us, admonishing us as Christians to live such good lives, to be to keep our conduct honorable so that they might see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. And, and how do we do that? He tells us three times, be subject, be subject, be subject. Now, now, again, being subject, whether it's to our government or to our boss or to our husband, there are limits to that subjection. Okay, we don't just blanketly obey and accept every single command we're given in any of those spheres, right? There, there are limits to our subjection. For example, if we are asked to violate God's law to sin, we, we say no, we can't do that. If the government or our master, our boss, or our husband or our wife, right, if they, if they deny us our God-given rights, we have the right to say no. We can't go along with that. If the government or our boss or or our husband or our wife, if they overstep their authority and their proper sphere of influence as ordained by God, right? if the government steps into private family matters, That God has ordained between a husband or a wife or parents or children, there are appropriate times where, because of the spheres of authority God has instituted, we say, no, we can't go along with that. But that's a very high bar in all of those cases. We should err as Christians on the side of trying to honor our authorities, whether it's the government or our boss or our husband. We try to err on the side of honoring the authorities, being subject to them as far as it is possible for the sake of honoring God so that they might see our good conduct and give glory to our Father in heaven. Friends, Peter's basically saying here in this section from 11 down to chapter 3, verse 7, he's basically saying, friends, look at your sojourners in this world. You no longer fit into the structures and patterns of this culture. And so, because of this, and to hopefully avoid persecution, and for the sake of winning some to the gospel, be the best you can be as a follower of Jesus in this world. That's what Peter's saying here. Be the best you can be as a follower of Jesus. Be the best citizen, be the best servant or worker, be the best spouse you can be so that they might see your good deeds and glorify god in heaven the 19th century baptist pastor scottish baptist pastor alexander mclaren he described our calling like this he says the world takes its notions of god from the people who say that they belong to god's family they read us a great deal more than they read the bible they see us they only hear about jesus christ Friends, it's been said that we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. And so when Peter tells us, live such good lives, honorable lives, lives of good conduct under government, in your workplace, in your marriages, right? The goal is that we might do that to the best of our abilities, honoring God, so that the world might see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives and give glory to our Father in heaven. This is our mission, friends. This is the countercultural mission we've been called to. Now, now Peter goes on, secondly, he, he says, this is our mission, but then he points us to our model. Now, again, this is not new territory. Pastor Stephen covered all of this last week. But, again, the point is, to understand marriage, we need to understand our mission and we need to understand the model we've been given. What is our model? Who do we look to as our example? Well, as Christians, we look to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2.21, we saw this last week. 1 Peter 2.21 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so this is, this is pretty simple, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is your example, and he's our example for the goal of following in his steps. So again, if you call yourself a Christian, friends, whether you're a man, woman, husband, wife, slave, free, citizen of this government, that government, right? If you call yourself a Christian, your model is Jesus, And you're called to follow in his steps. So then we ask the question, well, well, what what model did Jesus leave us? Now, we could go back and highlight a whole bunch of things. Let Let me just highlight three things in the model Jesus left us. Philippians 2, verse 8, the apostle Paul says this, being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to who? To God the Father, Obedient to the point of death, even willing to suffer for his obedience, even go to his death for the sake of obedience, death on a cross. So here we find Jesus' example, his model of humble obedience to God. And we're called to follow in his footsteps. We, we also discover, when we look at the model of Jesus, Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Here, Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest, prior to his crucifixion, he's praying to God the Father. And what does Jesus pray? Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Take this burden from me. Don't, Don't make me go through this. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Here again, we see Jesus Humbling himself under God, willing to subject himself to his Father's will out of obedience. He's our model. We follow his footsteps. We look at passages like Matthew 20, 26 through 28. Jesus says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, Jesus came in humility. He came to serve. He came to give himself away for the sake of others. He's our model. We're called to follow in his footsteps. Friends, understand this. God doesn't call us as Christians to anything less than what he modeled for us in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, sadly today, far too many Christians spend way more time looking at social media and TV and internet. They they get their model for life from, from the world and not from Jesus. Friends, we need to get back to God's word. We need to stay rooted in the word. We need to look at Jesus as our model. To guide us we need to follow in his footsteps peter tells us so we've got this countercultural mission we've got this countercultural model now we come to chapter 3 where paul moves to the topic of marriage and here we discover that he's called us to a countercultural vision of marriage let's look at our passage again and peter begins with instructions for christian wives Instructions for Christian wives. He starts out in verse one. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, again, that word likewise there is very important. What does that mean? It means just like everything that just came before it. That's what likewise means, right? So, again, what just came before the likewise for for you wives here this morning? What just came before the likewise was our mission. Okay, live such good lives among the Gentiles that they may see your good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. What came before the likewise for you wives? Our model. Jesus is the model. We want to follow in his footsteps. Okay, so likewise, rooted in our mission and our model, he goes on and he says, be subject to your own husbands. Now friends, there's an important point of biblical interpretation here that we need to understand when we come to this word, be subject. Be subject to your own husbands. A few months ago in our, in our series that we did, uh, the, the You Lost Me series, in the message on Christianity is oppressive, I gave you four biblical points of interpretation. One of those points, if you recall, is this. The Bible was written for us but not to us. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. In other words, it communicates timeless truths that apply to Christians across all ages, but it communicates those truths to a very specific culture and time. And so, for example, in our passage this morning, Peter starts out, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. All right? Now here's the thing. If I was teaching Christian women today, I probably wouldn't use that phrase, be subject. Okay? We don't use that language today. It just, it's just weird language in our culture and it confuses people. Now, is there a truth there? Yes, there's a truth there. Is there a truth that's just as applicable for women today? Absolutely. But again, Peter's speaking to a different time. So so what we need to recognize is, is the truth that he's conveying. And in our contemporary language, we might say something like this. Wives, you are called to voluntarily and deferentially place yourself under the authority of your husbands. That's what Peter means when he says, be subject to voluntarily and deferentially place yourself under the authority of your husbands. And I want you to notice something here. This is very important. Peter says, wives, be subject. He doesn't say, husbands, subject your wives. Man, you get that, right? He doesn't say, husbands, subject your wives. This is a voluntary submission on the part of the Christian wife. You won't find anywhere in the Bible... That says, husbands, subject your wives. That's not biblical whatsoever. Again, this is about the wife voluntarily submitting to her husband's leadership under God in obedience to God's will, following the model of Jesus. Now our culture will look at this and they'll shout, well, that's oppressive. But friends, stop and think about this for a moment. Is it not true that women make voluntary choices to place themselves under another's authority all the time? When, when a teenage girl goes up to Dairy Queen and applies for a job, she is voluntarily placing herself under the authority of her manager. When, when a young woman signs up for military service, she is voluntarily placing herself under the authority of her commander when when a woman joins the church worship team she is voluntarily placing herself under the authority of the worship director and why it's because without proper spheres of authority our society and culture would descend into chaos God created this world, He designed this world to function under proper spheres of authority. Because he's a God of order. And so he designed the world with an order that included proper spheres of authority. And so when it comes to marriage, in the same way, Peter says, Wives, when you enter into the covenant of marriage, you are voluntarily and deferentially placing yourself under the authority of your husband. Why? Because God has ordained the husband to be the head of the home for the sake of good order. Friends, God is a God of order, and this is his design for marriage. Now again, this doesn't mean that the husband is the dictator of the home. Not at all. That's not at all what Peter's talking about. As we're going to see, the husband is called to be a loving servant leader who follows the model of Jesus. Now there's another important principle of biblical interpretation that we need to apply here at this point. And this is another principle a few months ago we talked about, okay? The principle is this, never read a single verse. Never read a single verse. I can understand why somebody who doesn't know the Bible would open up to 1 Peter or Google search on the internet and read this first line, wives be subject to your own husbands, and think, wow, that's so oppressive, but friends, when we, when we interpret the Bible, what we do is we read the verse in light of the passage, in light of the context, in light of the entire book, in light of the rest of the Bible's teachings on that subject. And so when it comes to Christian marriage, we need to ask the question, okay, well, what else has the Bible taught us? We don't just read a single verse. So, for example, we go to passages like Ephesians chapter 5. And there, where the Apostle Paul writes a lengthy discourse on Christian marriage, he begins speaking to Christian husbands and wives in Ephesians 5.21, and he says, husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Oh, well, that changes things a little bit, doesn't it, right? So wives, be subject to your husbands. That is not an isolated reference that stands alone. That reference given to us by God under inspiration of the Holy Spirit needs to be interpreted in light of other references given to us by God under the interpretation of the Holy Spirit. References like Ephesians 5.21 that says, Husbands and wives submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? That changes everything. We're called to submit, mutual submission. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, in the very same way that you submit to Jesus and honor Jesus and love Jesus by submitting to his authority, Paul says you do the same for your husband because you love him as well. And so you voluntarily submit to his authority in the very same way that you voluntarily submit to Jesus' authority. And then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 5, and he says, On husbands, you love your wives the very same way that Christ loved the church, even laying down your very life for her. Wow, that sounds really oppressive, doesn't it? Friends, not at all. When you understand what God has communicated to us about marriage, we begin to recognize that this is the most liberating, beautiful institution that God has ever given humanity, where a husband and wife are relating to each other in mutual submission under God a wife loves her husband and honors him like she does Jesus, and the husband loves his wife and sacrifices for her like Jesus did for the church. This is anything but oppression, friends. This is a beautiful thing. Now, I also want us to recognize there's nothing novel here in Peter's call to wives. When Peter says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Here, here's the thing. We get so caught up on this, this term, be subject. We get so caught up on this term, submission, that we forget what Peter's calling us to here. Okay? What if we replaced this term with another instruction Peter's already given us? What if we go back to 1 Peter one twenty-two, And in 1 Peter one twenty-two, speaking to men and women in the church... Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Who's he talking to? He's talking to believers in the church, men and women. What is he calling us to? Love one another earnestly. If you remember our message from a few weeks ago, the love there is, a, is agape love. It's a selfless love. It's a serving love. It's a love that seeks to give rather than to get. And men and women together are called to love one another this way earnestly. So what if we substitute this phrase for the words be subject in 1 Peter 3.1? What if we say this, wives, likewise wives, love your husbands earnestly with an agape love, who among you here, women, would say, oh, that's oppressive? Uh, to, I'm going to love my husband earnestly with a, with a Christ-like love? That's all Peter's calling you to here. When Peter says be subject, he's calling you to love your husband earnestly with a selfless, sacrificial, giving love. The very same love he called you to two chapters ago. The very same love he tells your husband to love you with. This isn't oppression at all. So, so Peter, he calls the Christian wife to be subject to her own husband, but then he goes on and he describes what exactly this looks like. What does what the Christian's wife's subjection or submission to her husband look like? Well, it's rooted in a few things. Number one, it's rooted in her devotion to God. Look at verse 2. Love your husbands... "...that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by what? By the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct." Now, women understand that respectful and pure conduct there? That's not conduct directed to your husband. Peter's talking about your conduct to God. The, the word respectful there is phobos. It means fear or reverence. We've already seen this many times throughout our study of God's word on Sunday morning. Who is the recipient of our phobos, our fear or reverence? There's only one person who gets that. It's God. And your respectful and pure conduct, that word is hognos, hagios, holiness, purity, being set apart. So in other words, Peter's saying to Christian women, look at you're going to honor God, you're going to fear God, you're going to live in such a way within your family where you put God first and you glorify him and your conduct is holy and in that the goal is that your husband might see your reverence for God and be won over and persuaded by that. So number one, the Christian woman's submission to her husband is rooted in her devotion to God. Number two, it's rooted in her commitment to spiritual priorities. Peter goes on and he says, look it, don't, don't worry about adorning yourself with, with, with uh, braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, all this external stuff. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Peter's saying here, make sure your priorities are in the right place, ladies, okay? Don't worry about all the externals, about your beauty and your makeup and your clothing and your hair and your body, all this stuff, right? Look, it's not that that's not important. He's he's not saying any of that is sinful, but he's saying make sure your priorities are in the right place. Cultivate the inner person. Cultivate the spiritual priorities that lead to, to a a gentle and quiet spirit, the things that are precious in the sight of God's eyes. Friends, I, I, I once heard women, listen to this, I once heard somebody say, what you win them with is what you need to keep them with. And if you're trying to win a man with your external beauty and your clothing and your hair, man, you are setting yourself up for a lifetime of misery. And if you think the man of your dreams is, is following you because of your external beauty and all that stuff, let me tell you, he is not the man of your dreams. You want to find someone who loves you for your heart, who loves you for your devotion to God, who honors you because of that, because of your love for Jesus. This commitment to spiritual priorities will manifest itself in a gentle and quiet spirit. The, the gentleness Peter talks about here is, is strength under submission and control. That's what gentleness is. It's strength under submission and control. I remember when I was learning to first ride horses at Fort Wilderness over in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, Christian camp in Rhinelander. First time I ever learned to ride a horse, this big, giant horse. I was this little kid And I remember the Wrangler there, he said, This is one of our most gentle horses. And I remember getting up on that horse, and I could feel that horse's power. I could feel its muscles, its strength. But it was a gentle horse because it was power under control. Friends, that's what Peter is calling us to here as Christian wives to strength under control. A gentle wife is one who yields to her husband without yielding her inner strength. And you want to know where where else we can find that model in the Bible? Jesus. The one who is described as gentle, as meek, as humble. Understand this, wives. If you follow Peter's admonition here, you're in good company. This is hardly a call to weakness. This is the epitome of strength, to live a life of gentleness like Jesus Christ, strength under control, and and this quiet spirit that Peter speaks of. Quietness speaks to tranquility or calm. Peter's referring here to a wife that trusts in the Lord's sovereignty and as a result lives a life characterized by great peace. This is a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 woman who trusts in the Lord with all her heart, who leans not on her own understanding, but in everything, looks to God, and in that, finds great peace. Friends, this woman is a rock in the marriage relationship. And notice, God says this is very precious in his sight. Husbands, if you have a wife who seeks to cultivate this kind of countercultural strength in her life, this kind of quiet in her life, if you have a wife like that, if you're blessed with that kind of a wife, you too know how precious this can be. My wife, Kim, is a woman who cultivates this kind of quiet, gentle spirit. She's a rock in our relationship. Believe it or not, there are times even when I, as a pastor, I'm at home and I'm discouraged and I'm doubting and I'm fearful. And I can't tell you how many times it's been my wife who comes and reminds me of the truth of who God is and that he is sovereign and he is faithful. And she's been that rock for me many times. That's what Peter's calling you to here, Christian wives, to a gentle, quiet spirit, a spirit of faithfulness. Then he goes on, he says, and and patterning her life after faithful biblical heroes. He, He points us to Sarah. Sarah, as a great example of what a Christian wife should look like. Sarah wasn't a perfect woman, but she was a strong woman. She was no doormat. Read Genesis 21 sometime. When when Abraham wanted to keep his concubine and her her son in their family, Sarah stood up to Abraham and said, No, there's no way they're staying. They're out of here. Okay? She was no doormat. She was the epitome of strength and godliness and faithfulness. Sarah, hey, by the way, God came to me in a vision. He said, We're going to move to a faraway land. And we're going to become the the patriarch and matriarch of a great nation. You ready to go? I mean, she would have, you know, the average woman would have said, you're crazy. But Sarah was a woman of faith. And she trusted God and so she followed her husband's lead. Sarah, God came to me and I had a vision and he said, you know what? He, He wants me to take our only son, the son that you bore when you were 90 years old, And he wants me to sacrifice him. Take him, Abraham. He's God's. This isn't a weak woman, friends. This is a model of strength. Sarah wasn't a perfect woman, but she was a strong woman. And Peter points Christian wives to Sarah as the model to follow. And in the same way, ladies, God doesn't call you to be perfect, He calls you to be strong. And true strength, countercultural strength is found in the wife who honors the Lord in her biblical submission to her husband. Now, husbands, you're not off the hook on this one. Okay, we, We've already talked about submission as a two-way street, right? We saw that Ephesians 5, 21. But, but Peter has instructions for Christian husbands here. He, he starts out in verse 7, Likewise, husbands! Again, what does the likewise refer to? The likewise points us back to everything that's come before it, right? So husbands, understand this. You're called to be subject to. You have authority delegated to you by God over your household, but your authority is subject to his authority. And his authority tells you how to exercise your authority. You are not the boss. You are a servant of the boss for the good of your wife, for the sake of your family, and for your witness to the world. You follow Jesus' lead. What does the Christian husband's calling look like? Number one, the Christian husband's calling will be exercised, verse 7, seeking to genuinely know his wife in an understanding way. Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. That word understanding there in the Greek is gnosis. It it, it refers to a a, a perception or an understanding that's grown with time. It's an intimate kind of knowledge. Man, how in the world are you going to cultivate an intimate knowledge of your wife if you're not spending time with her? If you're not talking with her? if you're not communicating with her and doing stuff together with her that's what peter's calling you to here an intimate knowledge of your wife he says showing honor to the wife the word for honor here friends this is the very same word for honor that peter used back in chapter 217 in reference to the emperor So Peter's saying to you, husbands, you honor your wife the same way you honor the emperor. Men, would you honor the emperor? Absolutely. Then honor your wife the same way. She's a queen. And you treat her like a queen. That's what it means to honor your wife. Anything less than that, men, hear me on this, is sin. Anything less than honoring your wife as a queen is sin. You're living in rebellion against God. You got a problem with that, we'll talk after church. Honor your wife. Honor her as the weaker vessel. Now here again, the Bible was written for us but not to us. Okay? If I'm speaking to a marriage retreat, I'm not calling the wives their weaker vessels. Hey, that's not language we use in this day and age. But, but think about this. Is this really a demeaning, derogatory reference? What, what, what is a vessel? What is a vessel? A vessel is simply a container. Men, what is your wife a container of? She's a container of the Holy Spirit. She's a temple of the living God. You honor her as such. What do vessels do? They help us. They're useful. They they, they are productive. They have a purpose. You honor your wife in the very same way. When Peter calls her weaker here, he's speaking to the fragility of this vessel, a fragility of great value. In my china cabinet in our living room, we have vessels, china plates that we received for our wedding, Kim and I, 16 years ago. These china plates are so valuable, they're so fragile, they take the place of highest honor in our home in the china cabinet in our living room. Peter says, husbands, you honor your wife as the weaker vessel in that very same way. Because of her fragility and her worth, you honor her as such. He goes on, he says, recognizing her eternal value. Because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Men, all of God's eternal promises apply just as equally to your wife as they do to you. She is a king's kid. She is a daughter of the Heavenly Father. And she deserves to be honored as such. You understand, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be subjection to anyone except Jesus. Honor your wives. And we do all of this, Peter says, for righteousness' sake, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does righteousness mean, friends? It simply means being in a right relationship with God. Christian men here, you want to be in a right relationship with God, honor your wife. If you fail to honor your wife, you are in a broken relationship with God. And Peter says it will actually hinder your prayers. Lord, why, why am I not getting that, that promotion at work? Lord, why why do things keep falling apart around our house? Lord, I keep praying. Why aren't you answering my prayers, God? Are you honoring your wife? Peter says if you fail to honor your wives, it will literally hinder your prayers, man. You honor your wife for righteousness' sake. I'm going to close with this. The world says that this biblical model of marriage is sexist. It says this is oppressive. It says this is bondage. Friends, I would argue That as we've seen here this morning, God's plan for marriage is truly wondrous. And when this countercultural vision of marriage is embraced, it leads to life, it leads to joy, it leads to fulfillment for both the husband and the wife. And why would we think anything less of God's design and plan? Remember Jesus, John 10, 10 said, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. Right? So why would we not expect that when we follow in his footsteps and seek to honor his will and design for marriage, that it wouldn't lead to fulfillment and joy and life and life abundantly? Friends, trust God. Christian wives here, trust God. Christian husbands here, trust God. Honor his word. Seek his help and guidance in living out these principles. And I promise you, you will experience the sweet fruit of life and life abundant in your marriage. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word, for your guidance, for your instruction. I want to pray specifically and especially this morning for the Christian husbands and wives here. Lord, our our world is attacking marriage and the evil one is attacking marriage and Lord, we need to keep our eyes focused on your word and all that you've taught us so that we might walk faithfully in your footsteps and honor you and what you've called us to do as wives and as husbands for the sake of a healthy, happy marriage, Lord. A marriage that stands out boldly, counterculturally in this dark world and shines brightly the truth and hope that is found when we follow in your will and plans for our lives. Lord, help us in that. We need your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. These instructions are clear, but they're not easy. So we need to keep looking to Jesus, and we need your empowerment. And so, Jesus, I ask specifically this morning, help our wives, help our husbands, help them to live faithfully, submitting to one another in love, honoring you first and foremost, and then seeking to honor one another. And to you be the glory in that, in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And now may the grace and peace of the Lord be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you and have a terrific week. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here. And I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.